0: I'm excited to be back in the pulpit. I'm excited to be back in the Gospel of John. So please take out your Bibles and begin turning back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 this morning, we're going to be picking up in verses 21 and going through verse 29. That'll feel like a strange spot. I'll explain. John eight twenty-one through 29, page 894 in the Pew Bible. I'm excited, a little bit anxious, for we have a difficult one before us this morning. Actually, for the next couple of weeks, we are faced with some of the hardest and harshest words of Christ. Martin Luther calls Jesus' words here a dreadful sermon, an appalling and dreadful word of farewell. These are going to be hard and heavy truths, but if they are truths, it doesn't matter how hard and heavy they are, for they are true. They are that which accords with reality. They are the, this is the way things really are. These are, therefore, that which we all have to deal with. And we start, first, this week, with the reality of death. Today, we are talking about death. There is your big theme, your big idea this morning, death. I've mentioned before that I, I slogged through Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, Last fall, I mentioned that again to impress you uh, that I slogged through that. It's one of the great works in the history of literature, but I'm honestly not yet a true literature buff, so I struggled to read the great Russian writers. I haven't picked one up since I finished that book. I will try to one day, but it was a hard and long read, but it was worth it. And one of the great scenes that stuck with me in Anna Karenina just, it lodged itself in my brain, and it was an honest and accurate reckoning with death. The character's name is Levin, and many think that Levin is Tolstoy. Many think that Levin is the author's kind of self-portrait. It's him entering uh, himself into this story. And the story, Anna Karenina, is as much about Levin as it is about the title character. Maybe more about Levin than the title character. Anyways, uh, Levin is not, at this point in the novel, a man of faith, He is greatly struggling with God, his goodness, his existence. And Levin's brother is on the point of death. I'm going to let Tolstoy take over. Listen to this Levin processing. This is what Tolstoy writes. It says, Death, the inevitable end of everything, presented itself to Levin for the first time with irresistible force. And this death was not at all as far off As it had seemed to him before, it was in him, too. He felt it. If not now, then tomorrow. If not tomorrow, then 30 years. Did it make any difference? Levin thought, I work, I want to do something, and I've forgotten that everything will end, that there is death. The more he strained to think, the clearer it became to him that it was undoubtedly so, that he had actually forgotten, overlooked in his life one small circumstance, that death would come and everything would end and that it was not worth starting anything and that nothing could possibly be done about it. Yes, it was terrible, but it was so. It goes on, it's a a hard night, Levin thinks his brother's going to die that very night. His brother survives the night, and so the next morning, the struggle continues. It says, he felt, Levin felt that if both had not pretended, but had spoken from the heart, they would have looked into each other's eyes, and Levin would have said only, you're going to die, to die, to die. And Nikolai would have answered only, I know I'm going to die, but I'm afraid, afraid, afraid. That's a very moving scene. You are going to die, to die, to die. And you should be afraid, afraid, afraid. Yes, it is terrible, but it is so. Yes, death is terrible, but it is so. But as we're going to see this morning, not all death is created equal. There are differences in deaths. There are worse ways to die. I just finished a book this week, In the Heart of the Sea. It's the tragedy of the 19th century whale of the Essex. It's the true story that Moby Dick is loosely based upon. And it seems hard to argue that dehydration is one of the worst ways to die. Historically, many agree that crucifixion is one of the worst ways to die. Dying alone from COVID, quarantined from your loved ones, was a horrible way to die. Dying in your home as another country invades and bombs your own is a horrible way to die but we don't like to think about these things you would rather me not talk about these things on this bright and beautiful spring day what about something more positive and encouraging and yet we think that in part because of our current culture's strange relationship with death our culture's view of death is confused conflicted and even contradictory. We do everything that we can to avoid death and to not think about death. We hide away our aging and our elderly in nursing homes. We try to neuter death by entertaining ourselves with death. It was a show last fall, the most watched show ever on Netflix. It's called The Squid Game. I did not watch it. You should not watch it. It was hard to even read about. But the show glories in graphic and brutal death it is only darkness and depravity that can be entertained by that but it is also an attempt to conquer death and to avoid its terror if we can turn it off if we can watch all those people die while we are still alive that's not quite as scary by avoiding death by turning it into entertainment we think that we have vanquished death but we have not the terror creeps back in Our culture's response to the great number of deaths due to COVID, to the deaths in the current war in Ukraine, our culture's response to it is consistent, is inconsistent with its worldview, but it is proof that we have not vanquished death, that we cannot avoid it, that we cannot neuter it. It is still and remains the king of terrors. You are going to die. The question is, how are you going to die? Because ultimately, according to Scripture, there are only two ways to die. And thus, there is only one worst way to die. For as Jesus says in our text, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin. Three times in this short but dreadful sermon, Jesus says, You will die in your sin. That's what I want to consider this morning. What does it mean to die in your sin? Why is such a death so dreadful? How do you avoid such a dreadful death? Have you avoided such a dreadful death? Let us hear and heed these heavy but potentially life-giving words of Jesus. We're going to consider this whole text, but we're going to focus on this thrice-repeated phrase and take our outline from it in verse 24. Point number one, you will die in your sin. Point number two, unless you believe that, I'm emphasizing that that, Point number three, I am. Let's read the text. We're picking up in the middle of this long discourse of Christ. He is teaching. He is revealing. He is confronting. Jesus has just offered the water of life, 737. Skip 8, 1 through 11. Remember, not in the original manuscripts. Jesus has just offered the light of life, chapter 8, verse 12. Now, he graciously but solemnly, warns us of the seriousness of rejecting his offer, of rejecting him. Apart from Christ, it is guaranteed that you will die in your sin. Are you apart from Christ, or are you abiding in Christ? Let's consider our impending death together this morning. John chapter 8, starting in verse 21. I'm stopping at verse 29 because I don't think verse 30 makes sense without the verse's that follow it so we're going to treat verse 29 with what comes after it next week and we'll see a little bit more why so john chapter 8 21 stopping in verse 29 pay attention this is what god wants to say to you today so he jesus said to them again i am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where i am going you cannot come For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Stop there, bow with me, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask now for your help. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that I can do nothing of eternal spiritual value apart from him. I believe that we can receive and hear nothing of eternal and spiritual value apart from him. So we ask that you would help us. We ask that by your spirit... You would open our eyes to the truths of this word. Father, we have heavy things before us this morning. Father, these are things that we would rather not consider. We would rather um, consider our health and consider um, uh, the length of days ahead of us, spring and the sun and all the nice and and pleasant things. Father, may we begin to more and more consider those things in light of our impending deaths. Father, we cannot escape that. It is coming regardless of how well we feel right now, regardless of how far that may feel right now. Father, help us to think clearly, and soberly, and biblically, Father, about life and death, about eternity, about Jesus Christ. Father, I desperately need your help this morning. We ask that you would work through your word. Father, comfort and encourage our hearts. Challenge, convict us if needed. Father, save sinners. Save someone this morning from dying in their sin by the power of your word. Father, we ask for your help, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, you will die in your sin. Again, We can't miss it. We can't deny it. We may not like it, but Jesus says it three times. Once in verse 21, twice in verse 24. Things are ramping up. Remember, this is the escalating conflict section of John's gospel. The more Jesus reveals, the more Jesus is rejected. The Jewish religious authorities are opposing Jesus. They're questioning Jesus. They're seeking to discredit Jesus. Here we're going to see they're mocking Jesus. Ultimately, as we've seen, they're seeking to kill Jesus. We read this all the way back in chapter 5, verse 18. We read it again in chapter 7, verses 19 and 25. They want Jesus gone. They want Jesus to go away. Jesus kindly warns them here about what will happen when he does go away. Verse 21. He says, I am going await, away." Great, they're probably thinking. That's exactly what we want you to do, Jesus. But he goes on. You will seek me. Pause there. We've heard this already. Back in chapter 7, verse 33. If you just look on the previous page in 733, there Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going you cannot come we discuss then how uncomfortable we are with the word cannot when it comes to coming to christ well christ is not he says you cannot come why not well consider where christ is going he says in 733 he is going to the one who sent him that would be obviously to the father the same father that he has just said in 728 that they do not know so how could they come to the one that they do not even know Jesus is speaking to them in their settled opposition to him. Jesus is confronting them with their conflict with the Father. You do not know him. I am going to him. Thus, when you seek me, you will not find me, because I will be with him. And again, you do not know him. These are very harsh and heavy words. Jesus is telling the Jewish religious authorities, the ones who most think that they most know God the Father, that they do not actually know him at all. He's not their father. Just wait until next week when Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 44, let me be clear, you are of your father, the devil. And so in 733, Jesus has already said that they cannot come to where he is going. And so now back in 821, well, he says the exact same thing. He just says it a little more clearly and confrontationally. You will die in your sin. But, where I am going, you cannot come. If that's to the Father, the presence of the Father, the one who is life itself, then saying that they cannot come there is the same thing as saying that they will die in their sin. Again, that's our big idea. And it's a tough one. But look at their response to it first. Verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? What is that? How are they responding to this weightiest of pronouncements from Christ? Okay, it seems like they're responding with levity. It seems like they're responding with mockery. I think they're making fun of him. Uh, Why would they respond to where I am going you cannot come with will he kill himself? Probably because of the Jewish belief concerning suicide at that time. Josephus, again, at that time, writes, the souls of those whose hands have done violence to their own lives go to the darkest Hades, and God will visit the sins of the evildoers on their descendants. Well, hold on a second. Let's, let's, let's be clear for a second. That's not true. Scripture nowhere says that. Suicide is, of course, a sin, as is any unjust taking of life but let's be clear it's it's not the unforgivable sin that's something else but the jews at the time basically believed that it was so it seems that they're saying in verse 22 well if he's going somewhere we cannot go well maybe he's going to kill himself because he must be going to hell because there's no way we're going there There's great pride and great arrogance behind what they're saying. They just assumed, as the Jews, as religious leaders, that they were right with God the Father. Jesus is here, and this is a kindness, to divest them of that false notion. But again, why do they respond so dismissively, so wickedly even? You, Jesus, Son of God, creator of the world, light and life, you're going to hell. Why do they respond so harshly? and hatefully verse 23 tells us look at verse 23 here's jesus's response to their response he said to them you are from below i am from above you are of this world i am not of this world there again we've talked about this this is one of john's favorite words world he uses it twice there and remember in john's writings world is a decidedly negative term Uh, For John, the world is man, the system and culture of man in its darkness and opposition to God. world for John is not the created order, but the rebellious, evil, moral order, immoral order, actually. So it's not creation in its goodness, but mankind in its fallenness. So they respond to Christ and his claims the way that they do because there is an infinite gulf and gap between he and they. Between creator and creature, between holiness and wickedness, between light and darkness. He is from above. They are from below. He is not of this world. They are very much of this world. So there's a great divide. And we miss or we minimize this divide to our great detriment. I think many of the problems in the Western Christian world right now are rooted, at least in part, in a failure to remember this fundamental fact. Right? We neglect the difference, distinction, the demarcation between creator and creature, between holiness and evil, between the righteous and the wicked. We just we completely blend those together and don't consider the difference. Right? The Psalms, the Proverbs, so much of Scripture is about the fundamental difference between the righteous and the And the wicked, uh, righteous by grace and the wicked uh, by choice. We just forget that fact. Jesus does not. He is always drawing lines in the sand. He is kind in his clarity. He says, you are of this world. And that is not a good thing. We've seen this. This is chapter 1, verse 10 again. He was Jesus in the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Remember, to not receive is to reject. That's what they're doing here. We love John 3.16, but we generally stop reading there. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. This is the foundational and fundamental reason why Jesus' opponents cannot recognize him cannot even understand him. They're blind. They are stubbornly stuck in their sin. They are not like him. And thus they do not like him. And so they ridicule him and mock him in an attempt to dismiss him and discredit him. This is the world they are representative, uh, representatives of. And as I've said, there's nothing more revealing about the nature of the world than its response to the coming of its creator. How have you responded to christ i want to draw your attention to something small but big remember jesus repeats this phrase three times identically almost look at this again look at verse 21 again and compare it to the repetitions of the same phrase in verse 24 do you see the difference between verse 21 and verse 24 don't ever tell me that grammar isn't important here we have the difference of one letter It's actually two letters in the Greek, but it's one in the English. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 21, you will die in your sin, singular. Verse 24, both times, you will die in your sins, plural. Why the difference? We we note and tend to notice the second, sins, plural. And this is often our exclusive focus, both in ourselves and in the culture, and in the world. We see the sins of assault and murder that have been plaguing our city. We see the murder going on in Ukraine. We see the murder of abortion. We see the sin of racism. We see the sin of sexual immorality in all its forms immodesty, adultery, homosexuality. And how much of that is creeping into the church even? We're we're all right with being entertained by these things? Uh, There are divides and divisions in the Christian world right now over questions of gender and sexuality. Some of you think right now that it's okay to sleep with someone else without being married to them. How much of the wickedness of the world has influenced and infected the church. Look, these are the things that we tend to think about when we think about the sins, the, the the actions, those those acts. But that's not what we're really talking about in verse 21. It's easy to see and focus on that, but it's also easy to miss what is at the root of all that. It's easy to focus on the fruit and entirely miss the root. The sins verse 24 are simply the diverse and ugly manifestations of the sin of verse 21. What's the difference? Well, some think the difference is the sin singular is more just about our state in general as sinners. But most think that in the context of this conversation and confrontation, Jesus is referring to the one sin, the root sin, which is unbelief. And it is from that, that which we are seeing so clearly here in Jesus' opponents, that all other sins flow forth. Every time you sin, every time I sin, unbelief is involved. You are like Satan in Genesis 3, questioning, did God really say? Again, you know what God has said. It's, it's clear. It's, it's all here. It's not complicated. He has given us his word. And so when you choose not to obey, you are in effect saying, I don't believe you, God. You are wrong, God. I do not believe you that sexual immorality is sinful. I'm going to look at pornography. I do not believe you that sexual immorality is sinful. I'm going to sleep with this person. I do not believe you that you are working all things together for my good, so I'm going to be grumpy and complain. I do not believe you, God. You are wrong. I, by the way, then, am right. Let's take that to the logical conclusion, then. You must not be God, then. Honestly, I... I kind of must be God then. This is ultimately what we're doing and saying in all of our sin. Unbelief is at the root of all of it. You are wrong. I don't believe you. I'm going to do this thing anyways. Calvin says unbelief is the source and cause of all evils. J.C. Ryle, unbelief is the special sin that ruins men's souls. We probably all have a certain list of the really, really bad things that we think ruins men's souls do we ever think about this one unbelief is the special sin that ruins men's souls and so jesus says you will die in your sin and sins but i want to step back we could just stop there and just kind of leave it and say here's here's what he says but let's unpack this a bit further we have to ask and we rarely do here is is why what really is the big deal why doesn't god just Get over it. Why is the wages of sin death? Dreadful death, eternal, unending death and suffering and misery. Why? You can always ask why. Uh, One of the most important works of the medieval period uh, does just that. You should know your church history. At the end of the 12th century, Anselm, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, composed his most significant work, Cur Deus Homo. In Latin, that literally says, why God man? Or, or literally, it, 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 not literally. It kind of, the, the translation is kind of like, why, be God, why God became man? Or why did God have to become man? Right? This book's not just theologically significant, but it's even pop culturally significant. What is the name that we use today for a clown? What do we call a clown? What is the clown name today? It's Bozo. Thank you, Vijay. It's Bozo the Clown. Where does that come from? It might actually come from Anselm's work written almost a thousand years ago. Anselm structures this book, much of it as a dialogue between himself, the teacher, Anselm. He's great. And a fellow monk and pupil named Bozo. With with an S. But Bozo serves sort of as Anselm's foil. Bozo asks all the questions. Some of them like silly, kind of dumb Questions And then Anselm brilliantly knocks them all down and answers all the questions. So Bozo is a bit of a dummy, and he might be where our name for a clown comes from. No one knows for sure, but that's what some people think. Anyways, at one point in the middle of the dialogue, Bozo is still struggling to understand why such an extravagant act, the incarnation and death of the Son of God, is necessary. To which Anselm seems to almost cry out, you have not yet considered the great weight or the gravity of sin. You have not yet considered the great weight or gravity of sin. That's why. That fact is the only thing that makes sense of so many other things. Many of our problems and doubts and questions are rooted in a failure to consider the great weight and the deadly and eternally serious nature of sin. And that itself is rooted in a failure to consider the great weight of the all-glorious God. We think so little of him that we end up then thinking so little of sin against him. And there is no more dangerous error. What if, what if, God is truly who he is as revealed in the scriptures? And what if he is the great I am existence itself? Just listen to the 1689. I cannot say it better than this. Here's chapter two. Again, I think one of the best paragraphs ever penned by men, not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says. This is the chapter on God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or passions. He alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. What if he is that? What if he actually is that? If he is indescribably great and indescribably good. Because the confession keeps going. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. What if he actually is that? What if there really is a God and he is the perfect Person, perfect in glory, perfect in greatness, perfect in goodness. How then eternally offensive and criminal to reject him and to say to him, I do not believe you, I do not trust you, I do not want you, you are not good. Again, how insulted are we when someone says or even implies such a thing to us? And listen, we aren't that trustworthy. <laughs> We aren't that good, but he is, perfectly so. We see the gravity of sin in light of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, because God himself is life, eternal life. And in our sin, we not only reject him, we thus say no to life, choosing death, but we offend him greatly. And he will, as the holy and righteous God. He must punish this chief of sin unbelief in him and so jesus warned you you will die in your sin and we should tremble at these words if the bible is true if there is a god a judge a standard that we are beholding to and again there is we all know that there is whether you are a believer or not this is why deep down in our hearts we try to be good even though we fail, this is why we always feel so guilty because there is that standard that we are beholding to. Uh, if all that's true, and it is, we will one day stand before Him soon, and give an account. We should consider that more. We should live in live our lives in light of that more. Hebrews nine twenty seven. It is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. It's just, I mean, it's so common sense, but we so short. How foolish would it be to live for a couple of decades if there's actually an eternity? How foolish to focus on these couple of years if that actually goes on unending forever? Why, Why is this so difficult for us? You are going to die. You are going to stand before the God of all glory and perfect goodness, and you are going to be judged by that standard of absolute perfection. Remember, the bar is not lowered. It's 100%. It's absolute perfection or you're out. Are you ready for that? Scripture tells us that there are only two ways to die. The first is in your sin. And since that sin is a rejection of the eternal God, it is an eternal death. It is hell. But we just don't talk about this anymore. We're uncomfortable with it. We don't consider it. It's not loving. It's judgmental. Maybe we shouldn't talk so much about sin In hell. Heed the words of J.C. Ryle. Let us never suppose that there is any lack of charity in speaking of hell. Let us rather maintain that it is the highest love to warn men plainly of danger and to beseech them to flee from the wrath to come. It was Satan, the deceiver, murderer, and liar, who said to Eve in the beginning, You shall not surely die. To shrink from telling men that except they believe they will die in their sin may please the devil, but surely, It cannot please God. More. A.W. Pink. How little are we impressed by these fearful words, die in your sin, true of the vast majority of our fellows as they pass out of this world into a hopeless eternity. And how sadly mistaken are they who say that it is harsh and uncharitable to speak of the future destiny of unbelievers. The example of Christ here should teach us better. Christ did not hesitate to press this awful truth Nor should we. In the light of God's word, it is criminal to remain silent. In the judgment of this writer, this is the one truth which above all others needs to be pressed today. Men will not turn to Christ until they recognize their imminent danger of the wrath to come. Do you recognize the imminent danger of the wrath to come? Do you recognize the eternal dreadfulness of dying in your sin? And do you live like it? What what does your life reveal about your answer to those questions? Jesus says very clearly and very lovingly, you will die in your sin. Unless, praise God, that there's an an unless. Point number two. I'll be brief here because I want to point out one main thing and we're going to come back to this next week. Unless you believe that... For now, I want to draw your attention to that, that. Verse 24, look at it again. Unless you believe that, I am He, you will die in your sins. We've talked a lot about belief already or faith. Remember, belief and faith are the same thing. And this is the whole point of this book. John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We are all dying. The danger is dying in our sin. John tells us that living happens through believing. Which means we better get that believing right. Or we better understand what it is. We're going to look at that next week. Verse 30. Many believed. But then in verse 31. Jesus speaks to those who believed. And he clarifies what biblical belief is. As he turns to talk about abiding in his word. And so next week, we're going to look at belief in more detail to emphasize the fact that biblical belief is more than intellectually assenting to some propositional truths about Jesus. I don't know about you, but for a lot of us, in the circles that we grew up in, we were told little more than, hey, do you believe some of these things about Jesus? Yes. Will you repeat this prayer after me? Yes. Boom. You're saved. Welcome to the kingdom. See you later. Maybe not. Biblical saving belief is more than saying that you believe some stuff about Jesus. It is more than intellectually assenting to some propositional truths. That's next week. Belief is more than that. But this week, our point is that belief is not less than that. There is no biblical belief without that. Jesus says, unless you believe that, and then he goes on to teach some very specific truths, propositional truths, that unless you believe, you will die in your sin. And that is important because that is increasingly minimized these days. You'll hear things like, we worship a person, not a proposition. We're about relationship, not religion. We're about Jesus, not theology. Just, just give me Jesus. There was an article even in Christianity Today two weeks ago by a famous evangelical figure titled in a Christian publication, theology cannot save us. I would humbly, but vehemently disagree. Now, he tries to be a little bit more nuanced in the article. He says, oh yeah, of course theology matters. Uh, But at the end, he concludes by writing, theology is not enough. Again, he's wrong. Now, If he simply wanted to say that bad theology cannot save us, or if he wanted to say that theology not applied, or theology not lived out, cannot save us, then then great, I'm with him. But why then the need to title the article, Theology Cannot Save Us, and write theology is not enough? It seems that he has somewhat succumbed to the spirit of the age that tends to tear asunder what God has joined together. Christianity is propositional truths. And let me clarify that adjective Propositional. You hear the word proposition in there. A proposition is, in logic is simply a statement. T- talk to Peter. He's been telling me about logic and propositional and I can't keep up with him. I don't understand. Um, young Peter. The smart Peter. The young one. Um, the, sorry. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. But a proposition is a, a statement of truth. It, a proposition is a truth claim. Christianity consists and is founded upon certain truth claims certain propositions. Jesus says that unless you believe that, Jesus says in 17 verse 3 that knowing God, listen, that's what theology is. Theology is the knowledge of God drawn from the word of God. And Jesus says that knowing God, which cannot be done without theology, is eternal life. We're seeing in Romans, Paul gives us theology. Truth after truth laid out in brilliant depth and detail, logically structured and arranged as part of the word that is living and active, as part of the revelation of the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. There is no salvation. There is no life without propositional truth. The truth that we will see next week, verse 32, will set you free. Salvation very much starts with knowing that. Knowing God very much starts with knowing about god to love jesus and be in a relationship with jesus starts first with knowing truths about jesus if i were to say to you you know how much i love my wife and how amazing and wonderful she is and how everybody should know her and you came up to me afterwards and said oh, you know that sounds great your wife sounds awesome you know i'd like to meet her could you could you tell me more uh, about her what if my response was you know we don't really do propositional truths right we we just do relationship. you'd be confused Okay, great. I'd love to meet her though. Could you tell me something about her so that I can find her? Whoa! Why are you so into rules? Why are you so into religion? What about the heart and the feelings? Don't get caught up in all that that other that other stuff. That's really dumb. That's basically what many people are saying today about their relationship with Christ. If I cannot tell you some propositional truths about my wife, her beautiful red hair, obviously, her smile, how patient and kind she is with me, how amazing of a mother. She is. If I cannot tell you some of those truths about her, you cannot know her. You cannot have a relationship with her. You cannot even pick her out of a crowd. It's the same with Christ. It starts with knowing about Christ. And just as I grow in my knowledge of the glory of my wife, I only want to know more. As we begin to grow in our knowledge of the glory of Christ, we only want to know more about him. For he is infinitely and eternally better than even my great wife. Notice their question. After all this in verse 25. I don't think they're asking. I don't think they're asking honestly. I think they're asking dismissively. But they say. Who are you? Uh, That's the question. Can you answer that question? In verse 26. Jesus tells them. That he's been telling them who he is. Since the beginning. He has been teaching them. He's been telling them. All these propositional truths about him. That unless they believe. They will die in their sins. Again this is why. We emphasize not just the importance but the goodness and the joy of good theology. My only hope is that theology can save us. Because theology is about the Christ who alone can save us. And this is why, you know, this is why we want to make the switch to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith coming up here in a couple of months. This is why we're teaching through it. This is why we think this is a good idea. Because it is a more comprehensive collection of the truths about the God whom knowing is eternal. Life. Well, I encourage you to flee anything, any teaching that discourages theology and deep thinking about the things of God. He is eternal life. Knowing Him is eternal life. In His presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Blessing is found in meditating on His law day and night. That requires the truths of His law. That requires theology you will die in your sin unless you believe that are you growing in your knowledge of that are you seeking to know this Christ better and better unless you believe that but what is that that point number three I am again they ask the question in verse 25 who are you They ask it in response to his declaration in 24, that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he says it again in 28, you will know that I am he. An important translation note. In the Greek, there is no he. The ESV is sometimes a little too committed to sticking to the King James. The NASB rightly reads, you will know that uh, unless you believe that I am period it's it's the same strange greek structure we've been seeing a couple of times already we just looked at it in verse 12 i am the light of the world ego i i me i am literally it says i i am and we've talked about the seven i am statements of john each one is this ego i me followed by a a predicate i am the bread i am the light i am the good shepherd And so on. But this is I am no predicate. It's I am period. And I am not sure how this can be read in any other way than Christ claiming to be what only God can be. And this will build and become very clear by verse 58 where Jesus says very definitively before Abraham was, I am. He's building towards that. He's saying the same thing here. Jesus is speaking into a Jewish context to Jewish religious leaders. They would have known their Torah. They probably would have had it memorized. They would have known Exodus 3 and God's revelation of Himself to Moses as I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And I think that I am is the Son of God in Exodus 3. I think that is the pre incarnate Christ. I am. The God is the God is the eternal God. He is the one that is and always will be. And Jesus is saying that unless you believe that, that I am, that I am the eternal, all glorious one, that I am the creator and sustainer of all, unless you believe that, you will die in your sin. That glorious paragraph we read from the 1689, uh, unrivaled in modern confessions of faith, unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am that, you will die in your sin. It's not, do you believe that Jesus is nice? Do you believe that he is your buddy? That he is for whatever your cause is? That he is some great activist or a great teacher or or a nice moral guy or that believing in him makes you feel better. No, it's do you believe that he is that, that he is God? Any other belief is deficient belief. Any other faith is dead faith unless you believe that I am. But look at the text. It gets even better. You can't make this stuff up. This has to be true because no one could have come up with this. I love what Jesus says first in verse 26. I have much to say. I think that is biblical support for long sermons. So I have much to say. But Jesus is saying that he has a word of judgment for them. And how how could he not? If he is who he claims to be and their response continues to be what it is, then how could the all good and perfectly just God not judge their evil unbelief? and their wicked mocking and rejection. Their attempts to murder the God of life. Judgment is coming. But he's emphasizing in verse 26 that his judgment is perfectly aligned with the Father's. He does not speak on his own. He and the Father are one. So to reject him is to reject the Father they claim to follow. More on that next week. Verse 27 They don't understand at all that he's talking about the Father. But for now, I want to end with and emphasize verse 28. Look at it. 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Stop. Oh, what a word that is. Do you see it? And Don't miss this. Miss this and miss the only solution to your death problem. Jesus has just revealed himself as I am in verse 24 and again in verse 28. But don't miss what he says is going to happen to I am. This is amazing. This makes no sense. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, how would Jesus be lifted up? On a cross. At the very hands of the men he is speaking to. They have just mockingly said, is he going to die? And Jesus graciously here says, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. What? Why? Last time we saw that he is light and life. He just claimed to be I am, the eternal God, life. And here he speaks of his death. The Lord of life would be lifted up to die. And this is the that that you must believe. For this is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. This is the eternally good news that we could have never dreamed of, never expected, never hoped for, never deserved. And read that in light of point number one. Read this in light of the great weight of our sin. The infinite debt we owed for our sin against the infinitely glorious and good God. That debt must be paid. There's a lot of talk about justice these days without knowing what justice is. Justice is everyone getting what is their due. Our due is death. Everyone's due is death. The gospel is God giving his people not their due, but giving Christ their due. The gospel is God himself, the offended party coming himself and paying the debt for our offense. And since the wages of sin is death... Since all of us deserve to die in our sin, the only payment could be death. That's cur deus homo. That's why God became man. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh so that he could take on our sin and take on our death. He died so that we could live. That's what you must believe. Apart from that, there is only death. That's the only solution to your death problem. It is coming to and believing in the one who can solve that problem for you. Either you pay for your sin or Christ pays for your sin. Either you die in your sin or Christ dies in your sin. And that is exactly what he has come to do for wretched sinners like me. And do you see how amazing this is? All within one verse, I am the all-glorious one, the perfect person, incomprehensible in essence, perfect in power, wisdom, glory, goodness, life, lifted up to die. Church, there's there's nothing like this. There is no God like this. Jesus and Jesus alone is your only hope in the face of your death. Do you believe? Your death is coming. We must begin to consider that. We must begin to live in light of our death. And there are only, ultimately, two ways to die. And thus, only one worst way to die. You will die in your sin unless unless you believe and receive Christ. And if you do, Revelation 14, 13, the only other way to die. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. So you will either die in your sin or you will die in the Lord. And there is no other option. And the difference between the two is infinitely and eternally great. Our dear and departed sister Lydia uh, continues to be a blessing to me uh, through all the books that she left me. She knew me. right? She really blessed me with all these books. Uh, One of those books was a devotional. Uh, it's called Psalms by the Day by Alex Matier. He is a Scottish scholar. He has his own translation of the Psalms and then kind of his commentary on them. It, it's wonderful. I, I commend it to you. Um, so he'll have his translation and some notes and then he'll end each song with like a little bit of a, just like a reflection kind of on that psalm. Uh, one of the things I love about all these books that I've gotten from Lydia is I love being able to see what Lydia underlined. Um, I underline a lot. I underline quickly and sloppily and Melissa makes fun of me. Uh, Lydia doesn't just underline. I underline fast and sloppy and quick. Lydia would very carefully outline the whole thing. She would overline and underline and do the whole box around whatever it is that she wanted to uh, remember and draw attention to. It's, it's, it's really nice to kind of sit and read and, and think of her reading it you know, back whenever she did. But as I was working through this devotional, I stumbled across a part that she had uh, very nicely outlined. I, I don't know... Obviously, if she noted this in her dying days, I didn't read this till months after uh, her death. But I like to think that she did, uh, even though I don't. I mean, she didn't. I don't know. But here was the line that she underlined and, and outlined. It was this: "Dying without being afraid is one of the pearls of great price of being a Christian." Have we not heard Christians speak of death or pray for someone seriously ill as if death were the very worst thing that could possibly happen? Whereas the truth is. That for a Christian, considered solely as an individual, setting aside relationships and responsibilities to die is the very best thing that can happen. Lydia underlined and outlined all of that. Lydia lived that. And Lydia died that. And dying in the Lord, it was the very best thing that could happen to her. What a transformation of the King of Terrors. We begin with just utterly terrified of the reality of death ending everything apart from Christ. We end with Lydia in the Lord, content, safe, secure, satisfied, even in death, even in the face of the king of terrors. And the difference is Christ. Right? You are going to die. It will either be in your sin or in the Lord. One will be justly eternal misery. Uh, one will be mercifully and graciously eternal bliss. And the only difference is Christ. Lydia knew and loved the Christ of this word, and she died a good death without being afraid. My prayer is that by the grace of God, our experience will be the same. You will die in your sin unless you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing have life in his name. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you do not sugarcoat things. Thank you that you do not leave us naively in our sin to die in our sin. We thank you that you are kind and compassionate enough to confront us in our miserable and dangerous and dreadful condition. We thank you for this word that you have preserved for us and ordained for us to hear uh, this day. That we will die in our sin unless we believe. In Christ, Father, thank you for speaking through your word. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for the great privilege that it is to preach your word. Father, our prayer and our only hope now is that your spirit would work through that word. Father, I ask um, that you would use Christ and use the great truths uh, revealed about him here to comfort our hearts, if that's what we need, to, to challenge our hearts, if that's what we need. Father, we ask again especially that if what's needed in this room would be converted hearts, that you would do that uh, through your word. Father, for anyone in here who does not know Christ, who is currently dead in their trespasses and sins, we ask that you would open their eyes. We ask that you would give them a new heart. We ask that you would grant them faith and repentance and and new life in Jesus. Father, please work through your word. Please save sinners through your word and through the ministry of, of Woodside Community Church. And Father, for those of us who have been saved by your grace, Father, I pray that we would be comforted and encouraged by the fact that we were dead in our sins and you gave us life. What love, Lord. What a proof uh, that you are for us. And so we pray that we would leave encouraged and we would go into our weeks and face our difficulties and sufferings and struggles in light of the beautiful revelation of your love and the cross of Christ. Father, do your work now through your word, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.